Welcome to Scream Scene, the horror movie podcast, where we watch every horror movie ever made in chronological order, and then we rank them from best to worst. I'm Ben. And I'm Sarah. How are you doing today, Sarah? I am very tired. <laughs> it, it's sleep scene over here. <laughs> <laughs> you got up early, you uh, went, uh, did some yoga. It's also been a very busy week at work. That's true. It's been a very busy week for you. Yeah. How are you doing? I'm doing great today. Yeah, feeling feeling good. That's um, really good. It's been like up and down for Ben lately, but uh, today I'm feeling good. Well, your day's about to get even better because we're watching a horror movie. I mean, we don't know if this movie's any good or not yet, so let's keep the enthusiasm in check. <laughs> sure. Well, what are we watching? We are watching The Man They Could Not Hang from 1939. So this is our second... I guess, real horror movie of 1939, like, since we discredited The Face at the Window. Sure, but it's our third episode in 1939. Yeah, we're back in America, uh, and this is sort of our first chance to see how the industry responded to Son of Frankenstein. Which we quite liked. Yes. The success of Son of Frankenstein was a good sign for the career of Boris Karloff, even if he hadn't been satisfied with his part in it. Mm Mm-hmm. Horror was back as a genre, and so, therefore, offers of work for Boris Karloff were back as well. He was still appearing in Yellowface in the Mr. Wong detective series for Monogram throughout this period. Yeah, everyone's a little problematic. Um, That series would ultimately run for five entries with Karloff from 1938 to 1940. A final entry starring actually Chinese actor Ki Luke would fail at the box office, thus ending the series. The Man They Could Not Hang would be the first of several films in a multi-film contract Karloff signed with Columbia. Uh, This was a non-exclusive contract and ran alongside his contract with Monogram. Uh, So he was sort of appearing at both of those studios uh, at the same time, as well as doing one-offs for other studios. He wasn't exclusive anywhere, but he did have these multi-film deals at Columbia and Monogram at this time. Yeah, he's in a poly relationship with studios. <laughs> yeah, he doesn't have a steady. Yeah. He's not exclusive. So, Karloff had previously appeared in The Black Room for Columbia Pictures, uh, which had been a rewarding experience, so he was happy to work with them again. The Man They Could Not Hang has a few different sources as a text, I guess you could say. Okay. In a lot of ways, it could be seen as an attempt to replicate The Man Who Changed His Mind. Uh, it has a very similar <laughs> title. Yeah. And it It's has not a, as funny, though. No. It has a similar central premise of Karloff as a mad scientist whose experiments bring him, you know, on the wrong side of the law, and he's out for revenge. That basic premise is roughly the same. Okay. So that's sort of one source. In The Man Who Changed His Mind, the mad science being done was brain... Well, mind transference from person to person. Personality transference. Well, and and like memory and, and everything, right? Transferring the contents of the brain, but not the physical brain. Yeah. That's still science fiction today, mm-hmm. best my knowledge. The mad science in The Man They Could Not Hang revolves around heart surgery mm. um, and being able to do surgery on a heart while keeping someone alive at the same time. And that's something we can do today. So I want to kind of get a feel for what in this movie was futuristic at or like <laughs> fantastical at the time. Sure. Because here in 2018, like we do this stuff. But I was hoping maybe that you could give us some insight into the history of heart surgery, kind of where that was at in 1939, what we're kind of looking at here. Sure. So open heart surgery, just to put it out there, refers to the fact that your chest has been opened, someone's working on your heart. Mm-hmm. It doesn't refer to your heart being open. It's your chest that's open. Sure. Um, I just feel like that's good to clarify. Okay. And open heart surgery is often called on-pump 
heart surgery. There's also an off-pump heart surgery. It depends whether you're on a pump or not. Okay. You know. Um, what does that mean? <laughs> With on-pump heart surgery, your heart and lungs are stopped, and you're basically hooked up onto a machine, so your blood flow continues through what the doctors call cardiopulmonary bypass into a heart-lung machine. Okay, yeah, they're bypassing your cardiopulmonary system by hooking you up to a, a Heart pump. lung machine. A pump. Yeah. And then that's pumping your, your system. Totally. Okay. Yeah. I get that. Or then they can work on your heart without it going ba-bump, ba-bump, ba-bump while they're trying to do their, their stuff with the scalpels and so on. Yeah, totally. Um, I mean, in some cases, depending on the method of stopping your heart, the heart could just be completely stopped, and that's done through an injection with, like, this potassium-related stuff. Uh, they just pump bananas right up in there. <laughs> that's, <laughs> besides potatoes, that's the only thing I know that has potassium. Before the injection, there was also a method of basically making you real cold, so your heart starts to pump slower. Like cryonics? Like when you see like bears or whatever go into hibernation. Yeah, yeah, that, yeah. yeah that was the inspiration for okay, it. Okay, huh. But of course, I mean, like with all of these procedures, they try to limit the amount of time that they do the surgery. Sure. Um, with cold treatment, uh, they can really only do about ten minutes because you're cold. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You're going to do, like, long-lasting tissue damage. That makes sense. Um, and with on-pump surgery, because there's a lot of complications that could go wrong, they really try to limit how long you're on that machine. For sure. Now, there's some things with the history of heart surgery that skew more towards what you would think is science fiction than not. Okay. And I use that as a segue to bring up Robert E. Cornish who was born in 1903 and was a child prodigy in medicine. Okay. So this guy, he got his medical degree when he was 21, and he had the idea, in the midst of other crazy science ideas, um, that he could bring people back to life by using a seesaw to basically keep the person's blood moving while pumping them full of adrenaline and anticoagulants. None of that sounds real. Right? That, yeah, that sounds like, that sounds like some real charlatan shit. <laughs> so this is in, like, 1932, 1933. Okay. And his human experiments with corpses, of course, um, <laughs> of, of corpse, um, <laughs> did not succeed. Yeah, I feel like I would have heard of this, uh, <laughs> like, in grade school, if we had figured out, you know, resurrection in the 30s. Yeah. Also, he's supposed to be a child prodigy, yet his conception of how blood flow works is back to, like, the humors and things like that. I, where, like, oh, you're, you have a flu, better bleed you out. You got too much of this type of humor. I feel like he's maybe, you know, I don't know the <laughs> end of this story. I feel like child prodigy is maybe, like, a marketing term for this guy. You know, like, when... You get medicine from a medicine uh, show, and the guy's like... <laughs> the medicine show. Yeah, from like in the early part of the 20th century, like patent medicine. Yeah, where Coca-Cola like, comes from. Right. And they'd be like, ah, you know, Dr. Sampson found this medicine by journeying deep into the Orient, right? Like, I feel Ugh. like... Yeah, but I feel like that's what's going on with this guy. It's like, ah, Cornish, he's a child prodigy. Trust him. I don't know. <laughs> okay, so, so what did he... What came next? He thought, okay, clearly these experiments on corpses aren't working because they've been dead too long. Okay. But also maybe I should perfect my methods here. So he starts experimenting on dogs. So he did the reverse of every other scientist where he started with human experiments and moved yeah, to animals. Yeah, he pulled a Frankenstein is what he did. Mm -hmm. um, he apparently brought two dogs out of five back to life. Their names were Lazarus IV and Lazarus V. Right, okay, so this, the last two of the five dogs then, because I assume he started with Lazarus I. Yeah. Okay. That's, that's the implication there. And it should be said that while apparently these dogs were brought back to life with this method, they were blind and comatose. So their heart was beating. But there wasn't anything else going on? No. I mean, the heart's just like a machine at the end of the day, like an organic machine, right? Like if you just pump 
it. Like, that's not alive. That's just stimulation, right? Mm. This is like galvanism all over again. (laughs) It was enough to get him to be a part of a movie called Life Returns in 1935, where he starred as himself uh, about bringing these dogs back to life. So there was some publicity around this. Yes. Now, that's like 1935 that that movie's out. You know, he's been working on this method. In the 1940s, Cornish was contacted by a San Quentin death row inmate named Thomas McMonagle. <laughs> Very close to McGonagall, I will say, but it's McMonagall. He's going to be executed. He'll donate his body to Cornish to try to do this experiment. Because, you know, you're getting it right after death. Your experiment will work. Um, but the California state wouldn't allow it, given that uh, McMonagall was a child killer. And if he was brought to life, brought back to life, he would have to be freed under the double jeopardy clause. Yeah, it would be exactly like Igor the- in Son of Frankenstein. You, you killed him, and now he's back to life, and you can't try him for the second, you know, his crimes again. Sure. Um, it also is like a strange Walking Dead parallel right. going on. Sure. So there's kind of the science fiction part of this whole story, the whole history of open heart surgery, if you want to call it that. So what happened to this Cornish guy after that? Oh, he he goes on to, like, not do much... <laughs> Um, he retired. Child prodigy and resurrectionist. He he like retires in the late fifties and has like a brand of toothpaste. Well, I'm sure I'll be sure to look for that brand of toothpaste at my oh, local yeah. supermarket. So that's kind of the most fantastical side of all of this. Before 1939, there was some heart surgery pioneering with the work of people from like even the 1800s. So Francisco Romero in 1801. Dominique Jean Lari from 1810, Henry Dalton from 1891, and Daniel Hale Williams in 1893, all pioneering ways of doing surgery in the chest around the heart and with, like, areas pretty much with the heart, but not, like, open-heart surgery that we kind of consider today. Okay. In terms of surgery on the heart itself, um, there was some pioneering with Axel Kaplan in 1895 with an unsuccessful operation, and Ludwig Wren from 1896, which was successful. Okay. By and large, the heart was seen as far too delicate to actually operate on. Yeah, so, I, that, that fits in with my layman's conception of the heart. Yeah, for sure. Uh, so there's not a, lot of, not a lot of heart work going on, but necessity is the mother of invention, and with World War II, mm. there was an increase in soldiers with shell fragments and bullets scattered throughout the body. It was kind of considered, you know, it's too dangerous to, like, take out those fragments, so just kind of leave them in. Yeah, you um, just have to use a uh, arc reactor in your chest to prevent the fragments from getting close enough through your body to kill you. Exactly. Right. Uh, in lieu of an arc reactor, Dwight Harkin was a military doctor, and he developed techniques to basically use his fingers to get inside the heart to pull shrapnel out of that muscle. Mm-hmm. And some people died, but sure. so, uh, like a few people lived, and they were going to die anyway, so, you know, developing this technique was worth it, I guess. So that's in the early 40s, and from the end of World War II onwards, that's where you start to see a lot more innovation uh, with open heart surgeries um, becoming more like common and actually like successful by and large. For sure. It's actually a Canadian doctor, Bill Bigelow, in 1952, who discovered that cold treatment means of operating on heart. Of course, it's a Canadian thinking of what if we just freeze the person? <laughs> and then, of course, heart lung machines revolutionizing the surgery yet again. Uh, there were trials by John Gibbon as early as 1931. Things didn't go well, so he decided to experiment on cats using this machine in 1937, and he managed to keep cats alive with a, you know, not a sophisticated heart-lung machine, but basically a machine that takes the blood out, oxygenizes it, that's a word, puts nutrients in it, and puts back into the body. So that's 1937, and then 
World War II happens, he goes and does that, uh, and then in 1953, he uses this heart-lung machine on a person successfully. Okay. And then, as I kind of alluded to way back uh, with the injection uh, method of stopping your heart, Dennis Melrose, in 1955, develops that. And I think part of the reason why you don't see a lot of these developments until, like, after World War II is penicillin was kind of developed as, like, hey, this can stop infections and stuff right. in the 40s. Yeah. Um, and it was... Yeah, antibiotics is huge. Yeah. And in the cases where you would see, yeah, we operated on their heart, but then they died from an <coughs> infection. Right. Or, like, the drugs we used to operate on their heart lowered their immune system, they got pneumonia, they died. Mm -hmm. So, like, with antibiotics, you're actually able to survive this, like, surgery. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it makes sense, because, like, as a, again, as a layman, you think of, like, surefire ways to kill someone, and, like, stab in the heart <laughs> is definitely one of them. So then when you're like, all right, we're going to do heart surgery, a.k.a. taking a small knife and, and stabbing, stabbing the in the heart. heart. Yeah, it's like, it makes sense that this is hard to do, right? It's hard to do? Right, exactly. So, with all of this, it, it's kind of cool to think that, you know, um, the guy who developed the heart-lung machine that you were talking about, you know, he's experimenting on cats at this point, right? Yeah, and I then, wasn't sure how to feel about that. Well, you know, those I, cats I mean, died for science. They technically lived for science. Okay, so, he's experimenting on cats. So, no one's done open-heart surgery yet in 1939. No one has mastered how to do it. No one's, you know, perfected the on-pump technique. None of this stuff is there. But it's not totally made up, because you do have people ex doing the early preliminary work, right? Like, they're experimenting on animals and stuff with it. And it won't get perfected till the 50s, but it's kind of there. So, this movie's kind of right on the cutting edge of science. <laughs> uh, nice. In, in, you know, at this time, right? And you combine that cutting-edge science with the, um, I'm going to go ahead and say showmanship and notoriety of Dr. Cornish and his whole, like, I'm going to bring dogs back to life and then, like, make a movie about it and get myself real famous or whatever. I can sort of see why that sort of whole atmosphere of, like, weird, mad scientists doing stuff to bring people back to life and so on would be sort of in the popular consciousness at the time of this film. I mean, we've kind of already seen it, right? Like, even with the face at the window, with the galvanism and all that. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, galvanism's some, some old-fashioned Mary Shelley-era stuff. For sure, but I mean, that's kind of my point, that, like, we've already seen the ideas percolating in the pop culture consciousness. Yeah, um, but now we're exploring it in a more modern, up-to-date kind of way, right? Sure. Uh, applying up-to-date science. This is the equivalent, this movie, what I'm trying to say is this movie's the equivalent of, like, when you go into a movie now and they're talking about, like, ah, we created the monster using nanotechnology and gene rewriting, and you're like, you know, that's the explanation nowadays, right? Oh, uh, what was that movie? Splice? Splice, yeah, yeah. So, directing The Man They Could Not Hang is Nick Grinder. Uh, Nick Grinder was a veteran director of B-movies, with 65 directing credits to his name, from 1928 to 1945. Oh, so his last name really just referred to him grinding out these movies. Yeah, it was his work ethic. This would be his 29th feature film, and yeah, he just was a worker. So, here he is, working. Joining Karloff in the cast is Lorna Gray, a Columbia contract player, basically. Just another worker. Another worker, exactly. She was born Virginia Pound in 1917 in Grand Rapids, Michigan. She initially tested at Universal Studios before appearing in her first film at 20 years old for Paramount. In 1938, Paramount dropped her from her contract, so she signed with Columbia, and that studio changed her name to Lorna Gray. She appeared largely in comedies and shorts for Columbia, including alongside the Three Stooges. In 1945, she left Columbia and moved to Republic Pictures, changing her name yet again to Adrian Booth. 
There, she became Republic's second-highest-billed actress, often appearing as love interests and villainesses in Republic serials, such as the main love interest Gail Richards in the 1944 Captain America serial. Oh, cool. She passed away last year, uh, just three months short of 100 years old. Dang. Yeah. Good for her. The other actress in this movie is Anne Doran, another Columbia Pictures contract player. Uh, She appeared in over 500 movies and 1,000 episodes of television over the course of her 66-year career from 1922 to 1988. Um, Damn! But she was always in, like, small roles. Character actor parts, cameo parts, bit roles, supporting roles. Oh, okay. Um, Her best-known role is probably as James Dean's mother, in 1955's Rebel Without a Cause. Oh, yeah. Like, that's her most significant, what people would remember her from, appearance. In another very minor role in this movie appears Byron Folger, who was one of the most recognizable that guys of (laughs) Golden Age Hollywood. In a career spanning 50 years, he developed a shtick as a mild-mannered worrywart, appearing whiny and weak-willed, He'd be like the worried hotel clerk, or the worried busboy, or the worried waiter. By the 1950s, he was so well established in these roles that he could elicit a laugh from audiences just by showing up, uh, because they would uh, like immediately know what his shtick was. And by the 1960s, he could appear in parts that were designed to reference or play against his standard type for comedic effect, uh, like his largest role ever where he played the devil in a comedy movie. (laughs) Nice. In reality, he wasn't the pushover he played on screen. He once punched out Errol Flynn for flirting with his wife at a party. The Man They Could Not Hang, the premise of which had been loosely inspired by the man who changed his mind, was a decent success upon release, which would lead to a whole series of Karloff Mad Scientist movies for Columbia Pictures, Uh, The next of which would be The Man with Nine Lives, which would come out the following year. (laughs) The Man They Could Not Hang is currently available on Google Play and YouTube, as well as on DVD, along with all of Karloff's other Columbia Pictures movies, on the Boris Karloff Collection DVD from Mill Creek Home Video. The Man Who Changed His Mind was a UK picture, That's right, right. yeah, from Gamont British. Okay. Cool. It's kind of neat to see, like, a UK horror film inspiring an American horror film. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Well, folks, if you would like to watch along, uh, go to the resources Ben just pointed out. Uh, But you can also just check out our website at screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. You're going to hear a brief musical interlude, and we will be right back after watching The Man They Could Not Hang from 1939. See you on the other side, everybody. back to Scream Scene. We just finished watching The Man They Could Not Hang from 1939. Ben, what did you think? I had a lot of fun with this one, Sarah. Me too. It felt a little bit like the movie Clue. Yeah, the second half. Yeah, like The Walking Dead and The Clue. Put together, you mean? Yes. Gotcha. And of course, I mean the 1936 Walking Dead. There's no zombies in this movie. Yeah. Ben, tell us what this movie was about. So, Boris Karloff is Dr. Savard, and Dr. Savard has invented an artificial heart-lung machine as part of a process whereby the heart is stopped and then the body kept fresh by means of cryonics so that a surgeon can work on the body at a leisurely pace and then revive the body later using the machine. A young student of Savard's has volunteered to be the first human to undergo the procedure, which has worked on animal trials so far. Savard's nurse is the young man's fiance, and as the procedure is beginning, she panics and goes to the police, telling them that Savard is going to kill her fiance. 
She thinks doing this will help save him, but when the police arrive and find that the boy is indeed dead, they arrest Savard for murder before he can revive the kid, thus ensuring his death. Yes. In the ensuing trial, Savard makes an impassioned plea for the cause of science, but the DA successfully argues to have Savard sentenced to death for murder. Following Savard's execution, his assistant Lang takes his body and revives it after performing the surgery needed to repair Savard's broken neck. So wait, you're saying that in the movie titled The Man They Could Not Hang, he is hanged? Yes, they do hang him. He just doesn't die. Yeah, well, he does. That's true also. It's an inaccurate title. The man who changed his mind, he, he changes his mind. Just saying. So through some trickery... Savard gets the judge, DA, police lieutenant, police doctor, his nurse, the jury foreman, and two other members of the jury to his house, along with a reporter who covered the trial and has since developed an interest in Savard's daughter. Savard has already killed six other members of the jury, while letting three who argued for his case uh, to live. Trapped in his house, the remaining victims are killed off one at a time as Savard controls a series of elaborate death traps in the house. The only thing that ends up stopping it is that Savard's daughter Janet arrives at the house and threatens to kill herself on the electrified gate unless Savard turns it off so everyone can leave. She actually goes for it and does so, uh, and Savard rushes down to her where the cop then shoots him. Savard is just alive enough to walk everyone through the procedure to revive Janet, uh, and then he dies destroying his machine in order to take its secrets with him. That's that's the movie, Sarah. Yeah. It's it's good. Yeah, it's it's made up of um bits and pieces from other movies. Like this is a little bit Invisible Ray, a little bit Walking Dead, a little bit Man Who Changed His Mind, as well as evoking that kind of old-fashioned old dark house genre. You know, that we would see in House of Mystery or Cat in the Canary or whatever. What's sort of neat is that when it does the, you know, everyone gathered together to the house thing, it's not horror comedy. That's usually the context we see that in. Yeah. Um, Whereas in this movie, that section of the movie is the horror part of the movie. Because the rest of the movie is more of a... Film noir. I was going to say science fiction, but we're both right. (laughs) Thanks for throwing me that bone. Um, Yeah, I... I thought it was interesting how, you know, we talked about in Son of Frankenstein just the full-on German expressionism extravaganza going Mm -hmm. on the screen and how wonderful it is. And I was really confused why they were going back to, like, Caligari German expressionism rather than wherever German expressionism in horror, in American horror, had kind of left off before the break. Mm -hmm. Um, And you pointed out that... In the three years, German Expressionism has kind of become its own thing in the U.S. T- more towards film noir. Yeah, it's it's fully evolved into another form, and now they're two like identifiably different things. Yeah, and so with that in my mind, going to this film where it's it's film noir in uh. how it has um, the lighting styles and its set design. Uh, the way that there's a lot of shadow and, and like everyone is like shadow slits mm-hmm. from like blinds or whatever or the jail bars, even the way that things are put in front of the camera, the mise en scène. Sure, it feels very film noir, even though the content outside of like the trial isn't really there. I also think that the visual style of the movie changes because I don't really see the film noir in the second half when they're trapped in the house that has a very different visual style in my mind but i totally see what you're saying when it comes to how the first half of the movie with the trial and the stuff in the jail especially is Mm -hmm. shot how would you describe the visual style in in the house honestly it's a bit more um utilitarian in a lot of ways in the sense that like it's showing you what you need to see for the story to make sense Um, there's a little bit less visual flourish in that section of the movie, um, at least in my opinion. Overall, I think what this movie really is, is it's a showcase for Karloff. 100%. 
because everybody else in the cast is just kind of there. The other actors aren't bad, but they also are... They're just working. Yeah, they're not notable in any way. Whereas Karloff is really great. He plays all the facets of Savard very well. There's the visionary scientist, uh, the loving father, the vengeful maniac, and he manages to bind those all together into a cohesive performance. Um, And he gets some really fantastic lines and speeches in this film, and he has such a wonderful voice uh, to deliver them with. Um, I think that's something I, I kept talking about in The Black Cat, mm. which was like one of the first Karloff movies where we actually got to hear him speak. Yeah. The pains that the filmmakers took to keep Dr. Savard sympathetic in the beginning is really notable. Mm-hmm. Like, you really notice it. The fact that it's emphasized, like, no, the guy volunteered. Yeah, it's 100% the nurse's fault. Yeah. So you relish in his death threats when he's sentenced and also a little bit in his vengeance but also like when the horror and the thrills start to get a bit too much for audiences of the time um in the house when like the lights go out and he's about to be shooting the nurse betty um is that her name yeah betty crawford i okay i think i maybe knew the crawford part i definitely didn't catch the betty watching it but okay uh i looked it up sure when it goes uh, to those more horrific parts, while still being within code limits, we no longer relished in it. You know, then we're like, okay, no, he needs to stop. But then also at the end, when he's shooting up his, uh, when he's about to die, he takes his shotgun and shoots up his machine so mm-hmm. no one else can use it and no one can use it for bad pur- purposes. It felt a little bit like how, obviously this movie hasn't come out yet, but in Gojira, when... The scientist takes his... Oh, sure. His invention, his, like, water, his... The oxygen destroyer. Oxygen destroyer. He takes that with him when he dies. Like, it felt a little bit, like, not in the same way, of course, but a, a little bit of a turn back to his sympathetic. Yeah, there's a there's an interesting thing that sort of happens throughout this, and we've, we've talked about this with um, noticing in the post-Cody era that they've figured out that the way that you can do horror is if the people getting attacked deserve it mm-hmm. is kind of what they've figured out, right? And instead of the, the victims being innocent, the victims are, you know, the ones who, who had it coming. They had it coming. <laughs> right. And I, I totally see what you mean about the, the sort of dance that they do to keep him sympathetic. I mean, they, they really make it obvious that, like, the murder at the start is not his fault. Like, the cops show up and he's just saying to them, like, hey... Like, arrest me, fine, but give me, like, an hour to save this guy's life. And they're like, nah, why? I gotta get home, drink beer. Like, everyone else is extremely unreasonable, basically. Mm -hmm. Um, And then there's a really interesting moment when he stops being sympathetic, at least for me, where all the people he's out to kill totally deserve it. And, and you're, you're watching him kill them with these elaborate death traps, and like you said, you're kind of relishing it and you're into it. And then Janet shows up, and she's trying to beg him to, like, stop. And he explains, oh, don't worry about it. Like, they're not going to arrest me for this. Like, not only am I dead, but I've laid all these clues to implicate my assistant, Lang. And throughout the whole movie, like, Lang is the most devoted to him. Like, he's the one who picks up his body and, like, brings him back to life and everything. And Janet's like, oh, why would you do that? And he's like, ah, don't worry about it. Like, I killed Lang, so they're not even going to find him. And it's like, wait, you killed Lang? Why did you kill Lang? He's like, ah, he didn't like the idea of me going on a murderous rampage. And that's, I think, kind of the moment where he loses sympathy because that's someone he's killed who wasn't asking for it. If you, you know, not to victim blame here or anything, but you you get what I mean in a narrative sense. Yeah, and it, it seemed so odd that Lang's death happens off screen. Yeah. And you don't even hear about it until that moment. But I think that's very purposeful because that's the moment where we have to suddenly be on Janet's side and switch to everyone else in wanting them to escape. And we go against Karloff, right? So it's very calculated so that that's delayed until that point. So that, as you said, we can kind of go along with Karloff and relish in the vengeance until the sympathy needs to switch. Mm-hmm. 
when it came time for the switch there, I didn't think about how Lang was treated as like a plot device. Mm. Um, I was thinking about how the women, the two main women in this movie, were kind of used for the, these plot twists. Okay. Twist is the wrong word. These plot contrivances, maybe? Sure. Beats. These plot beats. Um, we have the opening where Betty, despite being nursed, despite presumably having seen the machine work on the animals, whatever, just like freaks out, panics, and goes to the police. Mm-hmm. Karloff, as Savard, says something to her uh, when he's being taken away, like, stupid woman or something like that. Yeah, yeah. And it it just felt very, like, a bit of a a misogynist flavor in this movie for, of course it's a woman who runs off to the police. She's not allowed in the operating room because she'll freak out and ruin the experiment. So, left out of the experiment, she runs off and ruins it anyways. Yeah. And then with the turning point, what I kind of noticed is it's when Janet is pleading for her father. Um, But it's also the moment that Betty is in danger. Yeah. Now, you pointed out you feel like she's totally deserving of being killed. In the the context of the movie. Totally, totally. So why are we, like, suddenly like, okay, good, she's safe, when, like, we weren't feeling that way with the foreman of the jury or the judge. It's because she's a woman. Yeah. Like, she's, she's, yeah, Betty's kind of this walking contrivance for sure because she's a trained nurse who, as you've pointed out, worked alongside him who basically just gets dumb all of a sudden so that the plot can be kicked off and, in fact, does the exact thing that ensures her boyfriend dies more than anything else. So, you know, and it's chalked up to, like, yeah, she's a woman. And then, yeah, she's the, the first of the people getting killed to be saved that kind of knocks off the rest of the, the plan from working. Again, because I think it's the 30s and we're not going to show you a woman getting murdered on screen, right? Yeah. So she's used both because, like, it's that weird double standard where she's uh, unsympathetic because she's a woman but she's also, like, sympathetic because she's a woman. And neither of them have anything to do with, like, her actual character. They're just innate sort of ways of taking advantage of the audience's presumed sexism. Yeah, and what also was kind of strange to me is we get this little bit of a montage as they rush to save Janet's life using the machine. And when I saw the shot go off, I thought, okay, Karloff's dead. Mm -hmm. Sorry, I keep using... His name... Dr. Savard. Dr. Savard, I thought he was dead. And so I thought, oh, maybe Betty's going to get to redeem herself because as the nurse, she would know how to operate the machinery. That doesn't happen. Savard's still alive. And in the montage, as we save Janet's life, it's men's hands Mm -hmm. working the machinery. So it's like, what is Betty even doing in this movie? Yeah, she's just there to, to serve a few contrivances. I think... What you've hit the nail on the head of is why this movie, although I really enjoyed it, is not as good as um, its progenitor, as The Man Who Changed His Mind. Yeah, that's where I was leading to, for sure. Yeah. Um, And I don't know if there's something to be said about, like, if there's an inherent difference in the way that UK culture and US culture were regarding their women in 1939. Like, if there was something in UK culture where women were starting to be regarded in a more independent fashion that allowed the lead character in that film to be, you know, intelligent and useful, while the women in this film need to be basically idiots or victims. Well, um, I mean, the man who changed his mind also had it as like a, see, it's a woman doctor. Like, r- see, it's a twist. It's a hook. It's a gimmick. But she still was, like, allowed to have dialogue where she defended herself, right? Fair. You know, the the movie wasn't like, golly gee, a woman doctor? Like, she must be one in a million. She must be, like, that special one in 10,000 woman, you know? Fair. they, They let her in that movie defend the concept of working, where, you know, she's got the reporter boyfriend who's like, ah, why don't you just stay at home and cook and clean? And she's like, why don't you? Like, she's allowed to defend herself. 
mm-hmm. right? So I'm just, I'm really curious about that essential cultural difference happening, especially because um, Man Who Changes Mind was actually 36, right? So we're kind of three years later, and the role of women, at least culturally in movies in America, in the horror genre, is regressing, right? Um, it might be regressing in the UK as well, yeah, that's, to be fair. that's why I put in a ton of those caveats, because we don't have a very broad sample size to go by yeah, here. Yeah, we really don't. But you're totally right, I think. Um, one of the things I really liked about this movie is I think the writing of it is very smart. Um, even though it's built from these pieces from other movies, they manage to fit together well in the context of this film. Um, it doesn't feel like a Frankenstein script. Um, <laughs> By that, do you mean like the film Frankenstein or do you mean like Devil Doll Frankenstein script together? Yeah, I mean that the script doesn't feel like it's a patchwork, ah. right? I also liked that the science is sort of handled with an eye to verisimilitude. Like, we kind of know looking back, like, oh, that pretty much is how a heart and lung machine works, and, and you know, at least in theory, and how all these things kind of fit together. But there's a lot of small details that they do to make the science not just plot magic. Yeah, even just visually. Like, I really liked how the machine, it has the, the, the central two glass bulbs mm-hmm. basically that's supposed to be the heart and they rock back and forth like on a seesaw like yeah like cornish's invention yeah um but then with the actual machine there's that heart swivel in the middle and then we have these two larger vats of water mm-hmm. i pff, i don't know bulbs of water that are kind of in the shape of lungs so in essence, it kind of looks like lungs and then a smaller heart in the center. Yeah, visually it helps an audience understand, you know, what, what this is supposed to do and be. Yeah, a really small but I think great little detail is when Lang brings Savard back to life, he explains that he had to fix his broken neck because there's that trauma. And so it's not like the machine is just a thing that magically brings people back to life, right? You have to fix the thing. Then, like, also he explains, like, he wouldn't have been able to fix his neck if Karloff wasn't already dead. Because mm-hmm. um, it, you know, probably would have killed him trying to fix it. And then the, the other thing that's great is he explains that he had to, like, pump up the pressure on the machine to get it to work through the rigor mortis in yeah. his blood. And all of that goes to help enforce that, like, the machine isn't supposed to be about, like, oh, let's dig up Abraham Lincoln and hook him up to the machine and bring him back to life. Like, the, the, the way they're using it to bring Karloff's character back is not, like, the intended use. There had to be all these kind of special things on top of that, um, which is really smart not only to help us believe in the machine a little bit more and also believe in Karloff's resurrection a little bit more by making it a little harder, but also means that we can kind of buy, sometimes in sci-fi movies, you get, like, one weird gadget that's needed for the plot of, like, this particular movie. And then the movie ends, and you're like, okay, whatever. But you think about it, you're like, wait, if they have that tech, wouldn't it, you know, and you spiral out into, like, why would the rest of the world still work the same way, right? Yeah, yeah. It's a good way to justify things. What I also found interesting about the machine, the Mm. machinery, is that in the process of killing the guy... Mm -hmm. Um, but also bringing people back to life. It all happens in this opaque glass box. We don't see any incisions. Um, we see gases being used, and we see bubbling water in the yeah, machine. It's, it's very non... Threatening. Yeah, or like non-gory. Yeah, and I, I feel like that's because of the code, but I think they handled it and got a- around it fairly well. Yeah, like, this is supposed to be like a heart and lung replacement, but the fluid that's going through the machine is clear. Yeah. Like, it should probably be blood. That would be too much, though, yeah. for, for the code. While this is undoubtedly a mad scientist movie, it's very sympathetic to science and to the scientist. Definitely. Savard has these speeches throughout the movie. Uh, one's at his trial where he basically predicts what modern medicine today is, where he talks about, like, oh, yeah, like, an old person could have a heart failure, and then we could take... Like, the heart of a young person who died in an accident, like, put it in their body, and they could continue to... Like, he's describing organ transplants, uh, straight up. Um, There's another scene where he's about to be taken away to be hanged, 
and he talks about how he doubts the existence of like God and an afterlife and heaven because he's a scientist. And that scene's played like reasonably as opposed to like, ah, oh, see how evil he is. Yeah. I also, this is just like a side note to mm-hmm. your point of that scene. Um, I thought it was really cool that Savard regarded death as like, yeah, just another experiment. Let's see what's on the other side. Obviously, by this point, he knows he's being brought back yeah. to life and it's just fine. But I it's was a cool like, attitude, yeah, sure. it was a cool attitude. I, I liked that. Um, there's also like a great speech that he gives at his trial about how, you know, beneficial advancements in science are always at first like rejected and hated. You know, the people who come up with them are always like yeah, he cites, distrusted by, uh, by society. Yeah, he cites Socrates' Joan of Arc, which I thought was a little out of left field, but cool. Yeah, like, he's talking about the idea of, like, anyone who is ahead of their time gets kind of rejected. And then he has a great speech near the end of the movie where he talks about how all these beneficial scientific advancements are rejected and hated until there is a way found to corrupt them so that they can be used for profit and war. Yeah, definitely. That was a very unexpected speech he gave. Yeah, and it's it's really apt, and it's really on the mark. And, you know, it's, a, it's an interesting way to point out that a lot of times these horror movies, these mad science movies, can feel a bit regressive, a bit conservative in the way that they are like, ah, science, see, doing what, you know, God did not mean man to do. These scientists, ah, so arrogant, blah. And it's really smart for a movie to kind of point out, like, yeah, most scientists just, like, come up with their inventions to help mankind. The people who turn them into, like, bombs and, like, weapons and things are usually, like, politicians. This movie might be goofy, but it's a smart kind of goofy, you know? (laughs) I don't think this movie is goofy. Um, it's definitely enjoyable. Yeah, it's a, it's a lot of fun. When I say goofy, I mean like it's <laughs> no, I no, I mean like it's not taking itself so seriously that like when people are dying in the death traps that it's not that it loses that sense of fun, right? Fair enough. Like it's not like this is a movie about a dude who's trapped people in his house and then he's killing them through elaborate death traps, but it doesn't have the same feel as like Saw, right? Like, we're not in the audience, like, crying because it's so grisly and awful, right? We're we're laughing, we're enjoying it, we're along with the fun. That's what I mean. Okay. I do think this movie runs into a bit of the same problem that Invisible Ray and Walking Dead had in that Karloff's origin takes a while to set up, so we don't actually get to the revenge stuff for a while. That being said, it does better than Invisible Ray did at that pacing, Uh, But it doesn't do as well as Walking Dead did in that pacing. I wish we could have had more of the Death Trap House section of the movie than what we got. Uh, For me, that was really the most fun. Yeah, I wanted to hear... So, they're about to have dinner, and apparently on the name cards, Karloff has put, like, how the person will die and the exact time. And we only hear, like, what one of them is. And it's the first guy. And I wanted to hear, like, what his plan was for every single person. Yeah. I wish we, like, obviously not like, oh, what does yours say? Go, Let's go around the table. But I, I wanted to, I'm totally with you that I could have had more. Yeah, because the first two death traps are really clever. With, like, the judge electrocuting himself and then the foreman, like, getting killed by, like, a poisoned needle in a phone, like, a phone receiver. Which I swear I've seen that in a, like... Bill Finger, Jerry Robinson, Batman comic. <laughs> like, he's killing people like the Joker in Golden Age Batman comics, is what he's doing. Um, and what I like is that he's like, don't go to the gate. Don't pick up that phone. Yeah. He's like, don't do it. And, then, and they're like, oh, I'm gonna do it. Oh, I'm dead now. Yeah, and then, you know, by the time we get to the third person, he's starting to rush, so he's just got, like, a gun, and he's just, like, sniping at them. <laughs> so, yeah, I, I would have liked to have seen that part of the movie be you know, a bit more core. I think if this movie was made today, like, this movie was, what, an hour and ten minutes long? Like, if if this movie was made today, you would have done everything up to the house could have taken the exact same amount of time, but you would have just had a two-hour movie, so you could have had the house section go on longer. So where do you think the man they could not hang ranks in relation to these other movies? I kind of have a spot picked out for this movie, 
but I made a range just in case. I don't think this is as good as The Man Who Changed His Mind. Mm -hmm. um, we kind of hinted at that earlier, um, but I think The Man Who Changed His Mind, in addition to having the um, female protagonist to speak in its favor, I just find like that movie kind of gets to its plot a bit quicker, and then once it does get to its plot, is really fun. I just enjoy it more. That's my ceiling. I think my, my, the highest I'll go on this movie is number 21, uh, below The Man Who Changed His Mind, and above The Ghoul. Sure. I kind of feel like this movie's better than The Ghoul. At least I think I had more fun watching this than The Ghoul. <laughs> uh, but, so that's kind of my spot, to be honest, is, is below that, above The Ghoul. But my floor, the lowest I'll put this movie, is number 29. Um, I think I could be argued that The Raven, which has some similarities is better than this, um, but I think this beats out the original Student of Prague for me. Uh, my spot was above the ghoul, below the man who changed his mind. Oh, you were thinking the exact same spot? Yeah. Cool, then that's where it's going. Cool. I didn't even do a range. I was like, I feel like this is where it should go. Cool. Then that's where it's going. <laughs> Easy. <laughs> Entering the list at number 21, the man they could not hang... From 1939, directed by Nick Grinder. If you would like to see this list, you can go to our website, screamscenepodcast.tumblr.com. There you can find links to the other episodes. You can also find an appeals box if you would like to submit an appeal or any questions or concerns you may have about the show. If Tumblr isn't your bag, you can reach us at screamscenepodcast at gmail.com or talk to us on Twitter at underscore screamscene. Scream Scene updates every Wednesday on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Google Play. Through our RSS feed, you can also get us uh, wherever fine podcasts are found. If you would like to help out the show, you can leave us a rating or a review at any one of those services, which helps the show pop up in the feeds of people who maybe aren't familiar with it. Or you can be a bit more direct with your recommendations and just tell a friend about the show. If you would like to help us in an immediate fashion, you can head over to patreon.com slash screamscenepodcast and become a patron of the night for as little as a dollar a month, with special bonus audio and monthly horror short stories being part of the rewards for higher level patrons. So what are we watching next week, Ben? Well, Sarah, next week we are giving a second chance, third chance, to the Halperin brothers. Uh, we are watching... Torture Ship from 1939. <laughs> okay. Uh, I mean, it sounds like a horror movie. Yeah. I hope it is. Yeah. Join us next week, Creatures of the Night, where we determine if the Halpin Brothers are in ship shape. <laughs> that was good. I like that. Bye. Bye. Bye.